You're listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Welcome to SOAS Radio. You're listening to the second part of the academic workshop organized by the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy to commemorate the 17th anniversary of the UN. Uh, welcome back after lunch. We've had a nice long break and uh, we're on course for our third session. Hopefully it will prove to be as stimulating as the first two we've had. They were really good uh, for, for a Saturday afternoon. This promises to be good too. So what we have now are two papers to be presented by uh, Bertie, if I may, Bertie, Bertrand, or, or Bertie as everyone calls him. Normative Cascades, Human Rights in the North and South. And the second paper will be presented by Nico, Nico Shriver, who's been kind enough, and we've been lucky enough to get him online, despite SOAS and the te- you know, technological glitches that, that tend to happen here. Nico is going to be talking about his paper for the uh, Third World Quarterly, which is Managing the Global Commons, Tragedy or Promise for the Future. And we have as our discussant, Professor Philippe Culet. So, uh, Bertie, would you like to go first? And and then Nico? Well, Does that work? I think he should go first. Nico, would you like to go first? Maybe that's actually better. Yeah. In case, yeah. Just in <laughs> case we, we lose the link, it's, it's <laughs> better not to finish so. this off as soon as possible. <laughs> exactly, now that we still have the link. Eh? Exactly. So, hello, uh, everybody. I, I very hello. Much Hi, Nico. <laughs> I very much regret not to be, to be with you, but uh, I'm fighting here for global justice. Mm-hmm. Let me say two sentences about it. Uh, there is an investment tribunal under auspices of the uh, ICSID, a World Bank institution, and legal proceedings have been instituted by Philip Morris, a big tobacco uh, factory. I call them the elephant against a small developing country. Uh, that's Uruguay. I call it the mouse. Now, Uh, At stake is uh, whether Philip Morris is completely free to uh, in packaging the cigarettes or whether Uruguay has the sovereign regulatory power to uh, prescribe health uh, prescriptions. And uh, it also relates to the uh, fact whether they have to implement fully the anti-tobacco convention in the sense that you cannot have any misleading commercials that there are light or gold or uh, whatever cigarettes. Eh? Uruguay just wants to have single representation, just one type of Marlboro. They did not agree. They went to court in Uruguay and now they have asked me as an expert to testify whether there has been a denial of justice in Uruguay, whether Philip Morris has exhausted all available remedies, and whether there is a finality of judgment or not. So, in a way, it has to do with global commons, because public health is also a global common, but uh, I, I kept it outside of the scope of my paper, I, I took on a little bit the more conventional description of global commons in the sense that I related to physical areas. Uh, as you know, we are very much uh, preoccupied with the fact that we have nearly 200 states in the world, and yes, they are important, but two-thirds of our planet, 66%, uh, 
is not um, under the administration of states, are so are so-called international areas. And they include the high seas, the deep seabeds, Antarctica, the Arctic region. And of course, I also took you to the moon, to outer space. And I also took on board the atmosphere, including the vital ecological functions, the atmosphere and the other international areas conduct in terms of the climate system, uh, the winds, the sunshine, etc. Now, I discuss in my paper that uh, there are many early ideas about a proper management of the global commons. Forgive me huh, that I took you back to the work of my predecessor at Leiden University, Hugo Grotius, who wrote uh, yeah, more than uh, 400 years ago a very famous book on the freedom of the high seas in which he also advocated um, of course very much in the interest of the Dutch East India Company at the time that all the oceans and seas and the fishes uh, are an res communis, are a common good now uh, basically my paper has to be complemented with some ideas uh, uh, of various ancient civilizations, including in India, Sri Lanka, maybe some ideas about uh, 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 religions on proper management of global resources, but I did not yet have the time to it, but I, I will try to give a third world dimension to it. But then basically my paper focuses on the period of the United Nations, a period in which enormous progress has been made, in particular in the field of the modern law of the sea, uh, which uh, uh, formulated uh, all kinds of principles and rules for a proper management of marine resources, including in international areas, such as the high seas and the deep seabed. I, I briefly discussed uh, the uh, regime for outer space, in particular uh, the moon regime, which is belonging to all of us, uh, since it is a common heritage of humankind. Uh, that means that it is your property, but also the property of your grand-grandchildren, uh, because uh, the concept of the rights of future generations are included in it. We cannot yet say that for Antarctica and for the Arctic region, huh, there, there is a bit of a tension between claims by nearby sovereign states and an international understanding of international cooperation. So then at the end of my paper, I discuss, yes, we have all kinds of different regimes, but we have a number of common problems in the sense that sovereignty, territoriality, national jurisdiction, yes, they are still the prevailing paradigms. At the same time, we see more and more an a-territorial approach popping up. And for long, the preoccupation was how can we, in a maximum way, benefit from the resources in these areas. 
and now we are moving towards a sustainable use. What is a rational, an optimal exploitation, if exploitation at all, if we would like to conserve the vital ecological functions of these areas. They all have in common that there are not very effective supervisory mechanisms, that there is no compulsory peaceful dispute settlement system. Yet at the same time, we see perhaps more than on land in these 200 sovereign states and their international cooperation, we have very innovating experiments. Therefore, I call it laboratories for international cooperation in the terms of a ban on whaling, for example, a moratorium. We have penalties if you emit too many ozone-depleting substances into the atmosphere. And these are not only penalties by states, but also by the industry. You see a very unique cooperation. You see all kinds of institutionalized consultations in a very peculiar way. Think about the meeting of the consultative parties for Antarctica, but also a deep involvement of the non-consultative parties. Of course, it is a field where international lawyers cannot yet find customary international law, so therefore soft law instruments, including environmental protection action programs, other so-called soft law instruments are very important. And you also see that developing countries are very keen to have a say in it, to participate in consultations, to have access to information, to participate in decision making. So in a way, it is also an innovative form of global governance, what you can note in various of these regimes. I do hope you could understand me well and let me put it to a test whether I get any reply or that I am no longer on. Okay, thanks, yeah. thanks very yes. much for that, Nico. Thank you very much. And uh, we will uh, ask Philippe to hold on to his comments while, while Bertie gets on with, with his paper. So hold on there. Thanks. While being in your hands, would it not be an idea that he makes his comments just in case we lose him or... Yeah. Well, I, mean, I don't want to interfere in your program. No, I can't. No. We, we, since we've had him for so long, I think we can, okay. we can push our luck a little further. Thanks. Well, Nico, this is Bertie Ramcharan, and it is... Hello, Bertie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nico, I see that you share something together with Hugo Grotius, because Grotius wrote his famous treatise at the request of the Dutch East India Company, and here you are now rendering your services in similar <laughs> manner in Washington. So and it's Tom Visa is my uh, client. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nico, my friend, I am going to make my presentation while leaping off yours. I, it was in 2011, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, he delivered a lecture at Oxford University, the Fort Sarah Foster Lecture. And the title of the lecture was 
human protection and the United Nations in the 21st century. And in this lecture, which I will not say is scintillating for its content, but it is interesting for its frame, because he speaks about protection through UN peace operations, and he speaks about protection through humanitarian operations, and he speaks about protection through peacemaking, etc. And he refers to what he calls the creeping vulnerabilities. Now, in your presentation, my friend, which is written by a great classical international lawyer, you have walked the path of legislation, concepts, customary international law, but I have the feeling that now we must pick up back Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's concept of human protection in the 21st century. And there is a book that just came out. Uh, Tom will give you, uh, Tom is quoted with great favor, so he'll see if you get a free copy. <laughs> it's a book written by a guy called Ken Concha. And the title of the book is An Unfinished Foundation, The United Nations in Global Environmental Governance. Oh. And in this book, Conker is saying that, this is his presentation, the United Nations stands on four pillars. The pillar of law, the pillar of development, the pillar of human rights, and the pillar of peace. And he thinks that global environmental governance has ignored the pillars of, um, what did I say? Has uh, ignored the pillars of human rights and of peace. And he makes the following submissions in this uh, book. That we should find an explicit human right to a safe and healthy environment. We should acknowledge an environmental responsibility to protect. We should infuse law and develop the law and development approach with stronger peace and rights practice. We should find a legitimate and clearly limited environmental role for the UN Security Council. Just two more. We should exploit opportunities for environmental peace building and we should reconceive and strengthen what it means for the UN to make a system-wide response on environmental problems. The reason I have allowed myself to cite his views, I wonder whether you might wish to reflect on whether in the future we shall have to go beyond what I would call the classical legal approaches, custom concepts, etc., to an approach of protection uh, I was telling colleagues here that I did a degree in history, which I finished earlier this year, and I had to read a book by a man called Dobson, Green Political Theory. And he argues in this book that we have to dramatically transform our thinking on environmental issues. So I invite you, Nico, in reflection to this issue about whether or not we shall have to fast forward our strategic thinking to a protection approach. Now having said this, Nico, I'm going to sneak in 
a few words about my own presentation. Yeah, I think that's probably a good yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Nico, my, um, I was asked by Tom and Palavi here to make a presentation on normative human rights cascades north and south. And I was asked to look at the discussions of the 1940s, and that's what I've done. I've, I've restricted my paper to the 1940s. And it is basically a historical paper, and it argues that the approach that the 1940s gave us normative cascades, normative platforms that remain valid today, the, the Charter, the Universal Declaration, the Genocide Convention, the notion of human dignity, the notion of equality, the notion of women's rights, the protection of minorities and indigenous populations. So what I did is um, I, I had to ask myself the following questions. What does a cascade mean? And there is, there is literature in the academic world on this. I consulted Tom, and I've taken the literal um, understanding of cascade, water uh, coming off of a waterfall, you know, so... And then I had to face the issue. There is a guy, I think, that he's so erudite, but I think he's wrong. He, Samuel Moyne has written a book called The Last Utopia. And it's about human rights, the last utopia. And he argues that human rights can only be dated from the 1970s. Well, I have basically ignored him. I have said that I don't need to consider him because what I present are the facts then I had to ask myself, on what evidence do I base myself? And I have chosen two types of evidence. First of all, the evidence of movements in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere claiming justice for people who were largely in colon on the colonial regimes including in your former colonial possession in, in, the, in Indonesia. And I cited, oh, I don't know if I have it here, but Sukarno's Pancasila. So that was one strand of evidence. And Palavi here um, upbraided me for citing Gandhi, but I have the right to think. And so, and so I, I cite Gandhi. But anyhow, that is one stream of the evidence that I use. The... Um, the thinking that was at large in the sphere. And your countryman, Herman Burgers, he wrote an article in the Human Rights yeah. Quarterly which summarized his piece, and I refer to his work. So that was one evidence. Then the other evidence that I use is that I thought that the best materials that I could consult were the materials at the time of the drafting of the Charter and the Universal Declaration in the United Nations, in the Commission on Human Rights, and in the General Assembly of the United Nations. And I hope that Tom and Palavi feel guilty about this, but Bill Chavis has done a three-volume collection of the documents of the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I bought the thing for $250. And so it has all of the, it has all of the, 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 the actual records, and it is on this that I base myself. And I think that I argue the following points. 
first of all, the Latin American countries made significant contributions. By the way, our, uh, was it you, you who said uh, that... Um, yeah, that you, was me. Yeah. yeah. You, you said... Uh, you don't want to get into a debate with me. No, no, no. No, no. no I, want to, I, want, I want to put a footnote. I want to put a footnote. <laughs> uh, so it's and good for clarification. Yeah. It's a good for clarification. Yeah, no, no, of course. No, 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 no. You, you said that, um, what was the word you said? They didn't make a, uh, was it a structural contribution or significant? Significant. Yeah. Well, I actually think that in arguing the case at San Francisco for an international bill of human rights, that they made such a structural contribution. This concept, because this was the strategic concept that would uh, be adopted by the by the Commission on Human Rights, in which we are still implementing today. When it comes to states from Africa, I looked hard at the evidence. Ethiopia was, at the time, um, really coming off of the um, Italian invasion, and Haile Selassie had gone to the League of Nations and made his case for international morality. Ethiopia is shown in the records as participating, but I, you may correct me if I'm mm -hmm. I, I did not find uh, much evidence of actual, um, uh, let's say, deep contributions from Ethiopia. Liberia, of course, is an, an, an independent state, and it's also present. Then, of course, South Africa. There has the paradox that uh, Jan Smuts drafted the preamble to the Charter of the United Nations, and he makes... Eh? And he Allegedly. makes... Eh? Allegedly. No, no, well, let, let me finish, my friend. You haven't heard what I'm saying. You have to let me Jan Smut uh, made this contribution, but at the time of the, when the discrimination against Indians in South Africa is raised, he was, I forget whether he was prime minister or whatnot, he immediately backtracked, and so we have to have some doubts about, how should I say, the sincerity of... By the way, he had always been in the League of Nations. That's Africa. If you look at my paper, uh, Nico, you will see that one of the delegates that I cite in the, I think it, it was Cuba, in this intervention in the plenary of the General Assembly, he summarizes the Latin American contribution to the drafting of the Universal Declaration. And when it came to Asia, I put right of place to... Um, Charles Malik uh, as the philosopher of the Universal Declaration. So the kind of long story short, Nico, what I argue is that I argue twofold. One, the blueprint and the foundations established in the 1940s drew upon ins their inspiration from many parts of the world, and I argue that they remain valid. And secondly, uh, this is not an argument in the paper, if I would have had to write a paper that was not restricted to the 1940s, I probably would have said a little bit more about the subsequent third world contribution when the developing nations came into the United Nations, the new colonies, the, the push that they made to develop approaches at the United Nations for dealing with violations of human rights, but an approach that would be killed largely by South Africa in more recent vintage. So, Nico, my friend, all you have now to say, Bertie, I have listened to you and I agree with everything you've said. <laughs> Thank you, Chair.
Chair, sorry, I just wanted to check with our learned colleague. Yeah. Do you um, take Egypt as being part of Africa? I do, yes. Because you didn't say anything about Egypt's contribution. Uh, no, that's, I'm glad it's in the paper. It's in the paper. Oh, it's in the paper. Okay, okay. okay sorry. <laughs> I don't what want to derail us. No, no, what, what can yeah, I say? Sure. There was no alcohol service. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was no alcohol service, so a glass of wine was brought back all of these. <laughs> That's good. Uh, but, but thank you. Thank you very much, Nico. Thank you very much, Bertie. And yeah. Philippe, we know we could be to Brett. So it's all yours. Thank you, but. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm, uh, hopefully I've framed that at the correct level, I, I'm not so sure. Uh, first I thought I was supposed to comment more than discuss, and then I figured it was more discussing the papers. So I was looking at the title of the, the day, which I assume will be the title of the special issue, so I, I framed my reading of the papers within that, hopefully that's also correct. So both, of, okay, both papers in a sense fit within one session. Um, there's a development, there is uh, a global regional aspect, but I guess I'll discuss them separately because one is more one is more clearly human rights, one is more natural resources. I couldn't find a way to comment on, on both at the same time, which in any case, in terms of written paper, is probably not what you want. And, okay, I guess what, what I'll try to say is what I thought could be added because... The papers are very good in themselves, so it's not so it's not so much in terms of criticizing, but more in terms of seeing what else could be added. And in any case, Nico, I guess you already mentioned you were wanting to add uh, additional things. Okay, I have uh, Bertie's paper first, so I'll, I'll start there. There is no there is there is no uh, there is no hierarchy. Um, okay. <laughs> So the first thing is that I understood 1945-2015, so my first reaction was to, to ask myself as to how, how that could be taken forward in terms of adding more to our understanding of human rights today. What I understood as the underlying argument of the paper is a strong argument for universality of human rights. And drawing that out from the perceived origins in terms of the UN origins of human rights which is absolutely fine. I guess as, as a starting point, I won't, there is no issue of 70s or 45. We can take 45 as a starting point and move um, forward. One thing I understand is that the regime has kept its basic structure, so there is a very strong reason to look at 45 in that sense for what we're looking at today. But there's, al there's also been a lot of evolution in the meantime. So that's why looking only at 45 when I was reading it, when I understood that it was the 1945 to 2015, sounded like there might be more than get, that could be said. One is the progressive recognition of rights which were forgotten in the first place. And that forgotten, I guess, has a strong North-South perspective as well. Okay, I'll just, uh, I'll just throw in water as one of those um, rights. It happens to be one where the recognition of the right to water has progressed much faster in the South and in the North. It's a North that is resisting the recognition at the international level. If there is a human rights system that makes any sense, I think we don't even need to discuss that one, there has to be a human right to water somewhere in the system. So there are issues arising from the kind of universality that, were, that define human rights in the first place in terms of the UDHR um, or the governance. Second is that there's been development at the regional level, so that's for more for the North-South perspective. And the regional regimes have gone beyond 
um, what the universal regime proposed to us, just one example is people's rights in the African Charter. That takes us beyond the individual framework, also that brings in the minorities' issues in, in a different manner, but definitely there is something structurally additional there. In more specifically North-South term, there is the issue of the right to development. Um, that I know at the international level, there is a question, is it a, is it a real human right, is it not a human right, what is the legal status, that we, I know we can argue for many hours on that. But again then, at the, national, at the regional level, at least, not, sorry, not national level, at the regional level, the African Charter has shown, uh, the African Charter on Human Rights has shown the way forward. There is also human rights to development included in the Charter. And now we have a very interesting, at least, okay, it's the first and only for the time being, but the Endoroids case from Kenya that has actually shown that the right to development can be a justiciable right in its collective dimension. So that brings a completely new dimension and really forces us to rethink the universal model that was given to us by our forefathers in 1945. Um, beyond that, I guess there is the broadest, in terms of North-South, okay, since it's both North-South and, uh, and 1945 to 2015, the broadest thing of the place of developing countries in the human rights regime. There is progressive realization in the covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights that's been discussed a lot that I guess maybe there's nothing to add particularly at this point. But there is more in terms of the rights that have not been fully integrated in the regime, for instance, the right to a clean environment. But it's not fully integrated at the international level. It's very well integrated in regional regimes. Its presence is more than in more than 120 countries by now. So I guess it's something we can't ignore when we are talking about universality um, of rights. When we start talking about things like the right to environment, we are forced to understand, and I, that I know all of us have a problem with that, looking beyond human rights, even when we're looking at human rights, and saying, for instance, in this case, that would just be the example for this case, what are the contribution of environmental law, specifically international environmental law, to the discourse? Here, as far as I understand, there will be a major contribution in terms of equity, uh, preferential or differential treatment for developing countries, which does not deny the universality of the measures. It's the same in environmental law. The idea has been to build universal regimes. It hasn't been to disintegrate the regime into small bits and pieces, but at the same time recognizing the different situation of developing countries, something that the human rights law regime has not really been able to do. Okay, that's, that's all for the human rights paper. Um, for global comments, I guess uh, I found it an excellent exposition of the current UN situation plus the historical basis for what we have today. And since the paper starts with methodological aspect, I'll also start from there in terms of what I would think it could be further, maybe further discussed or added. First thing is that the fact that the discussion, I know the title is, doesn't mention natural resources, but the explanation starts with natural resources. That, I guess, immediately gives us a specific twist or push towards looking at something that needs to be exploited in terms of used rather than conserved. I know it's both. I know we live within a world of sustainable development and sustainability. But the fact is, as long as we use the term natural resources, we tend to give a specific tint to the debate we are using, particularly because in, in, the, in this case we start from permanent sovereignty over natural resources as, as our starting point for debating what we are debating. 
second is um, the the papers talks about global assets as being what's being discussed and not including national resources. There's there something I couldn't completely understand because the paper seems to say that, okay, that was page six in the way I printed it, um, that it hasn't been applied to resources within national jurisdiction, but my understanding is that seeds or plant genetic resources were understood as a common heritage of humankind until 1992 when the Biodiversity Convention changed the legal regime. So in fact, we have a very important recognition, I know non-binding soft law recognition, but conceptually a very important recognition of a resource which was clearly under sovereignty that is seed. So in a sense, we have the beginning or we have the conceptual tools to start looking at national resources um, in terms of global assets or in terms of common heritage of humankind. But so that, that the thing is, I know the paper excludes that from its scope somewhere and says that it hasn't been applied to natural resources. That's why I, I'm mentioning it here. Among the global assets that we have, um, what I noticed is that uh, climate, air, wind, sunshine, I mentioned, for me, these are the ones that would be largely unproblematic because they're not yet subject to appropriation or there are no forms of property rights that have developed yet either in terms of sovereign claims or property rights. The one I would think could be added that would add a lot to the paper is water. Not water in terms of water, but water in terms of vapor water, vaporized water. Uh, that is the water that's part of the global water cycle, but the one which informs, as in which provides most of the water which is used by everyone on a yearly basis or daily basis, whatever may be the case. Um, water brings in additional concerns or additional complexities because water is subject to appropriation at the national level. When it's groundwater, it's full appropriation. When it's international water courses, it's not full appropriation with a different regime. Um, when it's not fresh water, it's something else. So I'm not talking about that. One of the issues we have, for instance, is cloud seeding. Cloud seeding at the national level, for instance, in the US was subject already decades ago to claims uh, of appropriation over the humidity in the cloud. At the international level, I know it's not exactly the same, but we can very well conceive of situations where cloud would be seeded uh, on the high seas and have an impact in a given country that I'm sure is not science fiction. Well, yeah. At yeah. No, I think it's <laughs> just kind of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's just... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, I think it's working. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> it's important. Yes. And the second, the second general point is that water availability at the local level being linked to the water cycle, in a sense we are forced to think of local water as part of a... as, as being a global asset itself. In other words, forcing ourselves to think about water in legal terms in different ways that we've done until now, which, is, which has been segregating the national and the international level, and then within the national level, disintegrating it into various water users, forms of water, and so on and so forth. Um, another point which you also mentioned when you just talk now is the tension between the push towards globalization and then conceiving of something as a common heritage of humankind or as a common resource, and the push towards appropriation. In that sense, I guess air would be an an interesting example to push further because while there are no claims to air as yet, the climate change regime clearly shows us that we are moving towards different forms of 
individual and or state claims over air. For the time being, it's in the form of pollution entitlements. But after all, it is the same air we are talking about. There may never be claims over air per se. Okay, they may or may not be. I have no idea. But we are clearly moving towards form of appropriation in an indirect way, which will have impacts on air. Air, again, is in a sense, is a quintessential resource which cannot be appropriated physically. That's what we all grew up with. In legal terms, we are now moving towards forms of, forms of appropriation. Um, okay, finally, in terms of common heritage of humankind, uh, I got a sense from reading the papers that we were talking about the more positive aspect of it, which is fine. I guess we have to do it because uh, that's something that needs to be projected. But at the same time, the law of the sea regime is nice to discuss um, in a conference room, but there is not much implementation. The Moon Treaty is problematic, and it's not problematic, it's, uh, it's difficult, because the main states that are likely to ever set, set up a colony on the Moon, or let's say the first ones that are likely to set up on a colony on the Moon have not exactly ratified the treaty. So in a sense, we need to think further than the regimes we have um, today. And one of the things that I would have thought we need to uh, think further about is the equity dimension of the common heritage um, of humankind dimension. Because for the timing, we're saying that common heritage has been created, in a sense, by a push from developing countries. But there is nothing which tells us in those regimes, including in the law of the sea regime, that least developed countries should preferentially be given benefits to any exploitation of the resources that will take place. So in a sense, it may, be, it may well be that there is an obvious North-South perspective for us as we understand the regime, but the way in which it would pan out if it was implemented is not particularly clear in terms of what it means in a North-South context. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Philippe. That was, I, I hope the authors got a lot of points out of it. It was very detailed. Uh, and, and, and informative for, for me, but uh, I'll just hand over the floor to Bertie and, and Nico <coughs> for five minutes if you want to come back with uh, you know any comments, reactions, any, any questions, clarifications. Uh, Nico, would you like to go first? Yes, yes. Um, well, thank you very much. It is extremely um, interesting um, to participate uh, in this way in the uh, discussion. Um, I, I, I always learn a lot from Bertie. I, I understand indeed that the 40s uh, has been uh, an extremely important decade uh, for the standard setting in the field of human rights and indeed I, I, I recall the earlier paper by Herman Burgers who is now 90 plus on the League of Nations and human rights and I was also surprised uh, how much there was already in fact before the 40s uh, and before the uh, decades of the 50s and 60s on which we always uh, focus. Uh, as to your comments on my paper, uh, indeed I could go a bit further in discussing really alternative ideas for a proper management uh, of the global commons. But basically all these ideas floundered. Eh? We know that um, uh, in the 80s and 90s the Commission on Global Governance, for example, came forward with the idea of an environmental security council. Well, it, it, it was never taken very seriously. Uh, but indeed, now the Security Council itself has also identified uh, 
on several occasions um, climate change as a potential threat to peace and related it to desertification, to the rise of armed conflicts. Uh, so, uh, in fact, I should that bring that a bit more in, in, in my paper and related indeed to uh, global environmental governance issues. I, I look forward to study the book you mentioned. Uh, I, I don't know it. Uh, moving on uh, to uh, Philippe. Um, well, I'm also very much a right to development man. So thank you very much for all your contributions uh, in this field, uh, on which now, for reasons of time, I, I, I will not comment. Um, I, I believe that uh, global environmental law uh, has, has meant something for human rights, especially uh, in terms of procedural human rights. Uh, there are quite a number of environmental instruments, legal instruments, which provide for access to information, participation. Eh? That is also very prominent in the Rio documents. Um, so from that point of view, I believe an interaction between environment, human rights and development uh, can be clearly established. I'm, I'm not yet quite sure what it means for my paper. I very much agree with you that biological diversity, probably the most beautiful convention, well, maybe together with Law of the Sea Convention, uh, in this particular field, should get more attention. Uh, unfortunately, the idea of common heritage of humankind could never be extended to uh, biological diversity issues uh, once settled on the much more fake notion of common concern of humankind uh, which, which well, uh, to put it positively is, is providing some global connotations and is a matter of concern not only to the country where the resources are related, but it is a global issue. At the same time, it is much more fake than the concept of common heritage with its connotation for a global environmental regime. Yet I do believe that indeed, yeah, perhaps even a revolution in global environmental law is that more and more stipulations are being made that states within their borders, within their jurisdictions, should take into account global interests in a much better way. And the global interest of conservation, and the global interest of avoiding long-term significant damage, etc. Uh, that, that I will bring in better. I'm excited about your two ideas to add water and air in a much better way. I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable in that area, although I am a frequent uh, a consumer of water, as you can see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to open my uh, hotel window very soon to have uh, better fresh air here. Uh, but I, I like the idea uh, uh, of cloud seizing, and it reminds me also of the early environmental modification um, treaty 
of the 70s, uh, uh, in which, um, yeah, uh, 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 to, to manipulate with the environment um, uh, was prohibited as a means of warfare, uh, the ENMOD convention. And, and I, I like very much what you stated about uh, uh, water and air, and that could be an important uh, new dimension uh, to, to my paper. Uh, I, I'm less uh, cynical about the position of the least developed countries in various regimes, although I know in practice uh, uh, it may not mean a lot, but in any case in the Law of the Sea Convention there are interesting provisions to take their interests into account uh, when it comes to the deep seabed mining regime. And that is all to start with the International Seabed Authority, but we are very close to it now. And of course, uh, 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 there is an overlap with landlocked developing countries, uh, least developed countries, uh, which have an entitlement to the uh, fish surpluses in nearby coastal states. Uh, and yes, I know it may not mean a lot, but uh, this may be something to briefly touch upon uh, uh, in response to your remarks. Much more to say, but I think my f five minutes are over. Huh? <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Nico. <clears throat> well, Nico, thank you very much. And Professor Colette, uh, thank you also. I think that uh, we have managed to kind of link these two presentations and the issues are very much things. So first of all, on the issue of 1945 to 2015, I basically, uh, I'm not being defensive here, I'm just telling you why I went the way that I did. When I asked Tom and Pallavi for where I should take this, and they said to me that the idea that the Charter's references to human rights and the spate of post-war conventions and agreements were an Anglo-American imposition, etc. It said that was uh, that human rights are more universal. And did the 19 Latin American and three Asian and three African and seven Middle East states have no thoughts or aspirations? So I tried to I tried to cover that. Now I can see um, that it might be useful to kind of give this a wider ambit. And I will ask if I made the editors to reflect on this and to help me on this because I am exactly at 7,500 words now. So whatever I add, <laughs> I am whatever I add, I'll have to cut out. <laughs> so that's the first point. But uh, I take your point in, in, in good faith, Professor Kuhn. Then you, you in, in comment to my paper, you, all, you mentioned also the right to water. This is... Uh, Nico, this is a subject that is extensively discussed in this book by Ken Konka, An Unfinished Revolution. And so, um, there again, uh, what I do with this in my paper, will I'll submit myself uh, to India and America. On regional regimes, which is your third point, it's a very valid point because, of course, the African Charter has environmental rights, it has equity rights, and indeed the the, the decision of the African Commission on Human and People's Rights on the right to development in the Endoroy case was a 
breakthrough development. So, um, yeah, again, I, I wrote a long occasional paper for the Faculty of Law of the University of Cape Town on national implementation of the right to development. And I'm, easy, I'm willing to copy and paste, but there again is the question of how I fit this in. On the right to environment, um, you've made that to Nico and to me as well. I want to get through a bit of history here. So after the Stockholm Conference, which was in 91, can anybody say? 1972? Uh, okay. 1972. Yeah. And after the, Nico, after the Stockholm Conference, I was a young officer. I just entered the UN. And the Commission on Human Rights asked us for papers on the, environment, uh, on the human rights dimensions of the Stockholm Conference, on the, the, the Conference on Food, and in one on you know, the Population Conference. And there, the Secretary did a paper isolating the human rights content of Stockholm. And then right from that point onwards, the right to environment began to gain traction in the human rights program. So, to cut a long story short, I'm appreciative of both your comments. The, public, the uh, editors will have to tell me what I cut and what I include. And I find this discussion rather fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. Thank you, Bertie, again. And uh, we're throwing... Uh, Questions open. Anybody who wants, we can jump in at this point in time. Very interesting discussions on, on the topics. Let me start. Um, <laughs> Bertie, I think that, that the concentration on the 40s is justifiable. You just need to explain it better okay. as to why you did it. Okay. But it seems to me that, because it does help the cascade mm -hmm. image, but it seems to me that you could easily kind of fast forward in your conclusion mm -hmm. to 2015 and get rid of some of the longer quotes from folks that are in the text. More of you and less of the, the longer quotes. Nico, um, my, let me go see where I am here. Just, uh, um, it seems to me that, that there's too much Grotius and not enough Arvid Pardo and Tommy Coe in the paper. Uh, that is, the focus of, of this issue is really on uh, the voice of the South, or whatever you want to call it, inputs from the South. Uh, and it seems to me that there, you know, there, there are lots of those. Uh, in fact, I, I'm trying to think if there's another issue on which there would be more. The major conferences in Rio, two-thirds of the members of the Brundtland Commission, etc., etc. So I, I think some of that could come out. I even uh, spotted a Thai prince. What? Who came I spotted a prince from Thailand <laughs> who came forward in the 50s already with the idea of the common heritage. Okay, well, that's even so better. Just but, uh, uh, in response, I will uh, okay. reduce that at the cost of Grotius, however painful it is for me. <laughs> okay. Secondly, um, one of the big themes we've had here today uh, um, is... Obviously, the South is not one big chunk. It's not a monolith of sorts. And it seems to me that several of the things that you hinted at, namely the, uh, the voices of the disadvantaged, the least developed, the landlocked, the small island countries, have really sort of penetrated this conversation. It may be based on economic interests. That's okay with me. But it seems to me that that is another really important thread 
And another thread we've had here is differences in power, north and south, but on this issue, I would say that certainly the major uh, voices in the South, the biggest voices in the South, have not always been amongst the most progressive on any of these issues. And so it seems to me that those themes could work their way in as well. Yeah. China. Yeah. Okay, great. Any more responses? Anyone? Yeah. <coughs> I'm learning an awful lot today. Uh, colleagues would say, yeah, you've got an awful lot to learn. <laughs> you realize it. <laughs> Uh, a couple of themes I want to ask about, uh, which I, I discussed with colleagues before, and one other. And I'll start with the one other, and I'm not sure whether it's a southern uh, theme or not. Uh, but in hearing the discourse about uh, the development of uh, environmental law, one of the issues which I and colleagues have touched on from time to time is the incompatibility to us, and I'd like your comments, the incompatibility of equality before the law as a fundamental principle of political rights with the provision in corporate law of, uh, the, of limited liability. And if you're looking at all the regimes of uh, um, protection of the global commons and so on, they seem to me to count for nothing if uh, property owners uh, remain entirely um, immune from action in law by people they might damage and that we have almost by accident created a situation where heads of state might have theoretical uh, liability in law for their actions as head of state when uh, property owners have a readily available uh, $100 off the shelf legal protection for anything that they do in environmental law or otherwise and it seems to me that this is in the 21st century, a silence in debates north and south, but a fundamental rights violation at the very core of the sort of issues that we um, think we are espousing. I, but I guess that's called ideology. Um, the other two points are more for Bertie, which is the, the role of southern women in uh, from Venezuela, Caribbean, Brazil in having gender equality root and branch in the Charter would seem to me worth mentioning and the last point which I've bored far too many colleagues on so I should be very brief is the, uh, the fact that while these agreements of the 40s were being created as Bertie knows there was also um, what remains the world's only uh, multilateral system for legal retribution for international human rights violations in the form of the United Nations War Crimes Commission, um, oh, yeah. which dealt with some 40,000 cases, <coughs> at least 500 of them internationally supported war crimes cases brought by the Netherlands. In, uh, in that respect, in this period, one saw the creation and crushing by Western, by Western authority of this commission which had uh, executive power of some, some kind, while non-binding legal structures, uh, which we now all talk about, um, okay, the UN Charter has some binding characteristics, but by and large uh, it doesn't, and most of the provisions, of course, the provisions of the Universal Declaration aren't binding. So if I was sitting in the US State Department in this period, I'd be quite happy with the trade 
that I can get rid of one internationally functioning uh, legal, uh, legal system for dealing with international crime um, in return for getting a, a raft of utterly non-binding measures. Anybody wants to take that up? Nico, you're being invited to start to respond to Dan's points. Would you like to? I guess you don't have a choice. Yes. Uh, well, in, in response to Tom, I, I think he has a very uh, fair comment uh, that I should pay more attention uh, to the role of developing countries, in particular also the role of uh, some persons uh, in the period of the United Nations uh, and indeed uh, I, I will look into the membership of the Brundtland Commission and, and some other uh, uh, um, global commissions including Sonny Ramphal the Commission on Global Governance etc. And I like also to spell out a little bit indeed the big clash of interests between the large uh, developing countries, also some of them with a huge continental shelf, uh, take uh, Brazil and India uh, and Sri Lanka, um, uh, versus the interests of landlocked developing countries, small island uh, economies, and certainly also the new category of um, developing countries which suffer most from uh, the impact of climate change. Andrew, uh, you raised the issue of corporations. Yeah, they, they are absent in my paper. And, and I will give it some thought. Huh? I will also consult uh, the rookie principles, whether I can see any connection for their global responsibilities um, uh, in a proper management um, of global resources. Um, I think that is all extremely limited uh, at the moment. Huh? Uh, but uh, it certainly is a point um, to which I would like to pay some attention. I'm in the position of luxury as opposed to Bertie that I still have thousand words left. <laughs> uh, but uh, I have to cut on Grotius. Uh, so <laughs> I think I, I will be able to complement uh, my paper uh, with some of these new ideas. Uh, in any case, I will do my best. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. Uh, thank you, Nico. So uh, there were three points that were addressed to me. The role of sovereign women in having gender equality in the Charter. I could certainly um, add something about that. I have um, a part on rights of women, but I, I, could, I, could, I could beef it up. That's the first point. On the War Crimes Commission, I recognize after having written the paper, then uh, that's why I threw in that third paragraph at the beginning, that there were that the Nuremberg the Nuremberg principles and the um, what, what, one one other thing I mentioned in the paper in this area here I probably could expand that and say something about the War Crimes Commission as a, that's I can certainly do that keeping in mind that I'll have to cut again and then I'll fast forwarding to 2015 with the Tom's point I think that that's a fair point I was feeling that myself so I'm going to ask the um, the editors to think about the following. 350 words. No, no, hold on a second, hold on a second. <laughs> the, pa the title of is it, the, is it the UN and the Global South, Then and Now, 
if I cut out the normative cascades as a title, I could easily write this paper. So you, uh, uh, because <laughs> no, I mean it's, it's either I've, no, I, 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 I can I can I can blend it, but nevertheless, um, because if I have to if I have to write about then and now the UN and the global south, there's so much of relevance that one could write, and so. But I, I, I will try to be cooperative. Nico, you remember the, you remember the Declaration on Friendly Principles of 1970. They have the principle. They have the principle of international cooperation. So I will cooperate with the industry. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. That is a really interesting question on corporate liability. I'm not, sure we've got, I'm not sure we quite got through, but. Uh, you guys really pat each other on the back. We love it. <laughs> it's called How did you catch on? <laughs> but no liability. <laughs> Limited liability. Um, and Philippe, would you do you have a comment to make on any of the points raised, or are you happy? I'm very happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe so maybe one thing that didn't go yeah. through. The, the, was that I wasn't talking about biodiversity generally. I was talking about plant genetic resources and the international um, uh, undertaking. Sorry, <laughs> you, you. international undertaking on plant genetic resources of 1983 of the FAO, the non-binding FAO conference resolution that recognized seeds as a common heritage of humankind. Oh yeah, seeds. Okay. Yes. So, so that's, yeah. what I was, that's what I was referring oh. to. Not no, no, I, I thought you were talking about the 1992 convention no, 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 no. No. on the conservation of biological diversity. No. But seed and the FAO, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. All right. Any more? Or do we want to break for coffee? Right? Because I have very, very loud nods about coffee. <laughs> so, Nico, sorry we can't invite you for coffee, but thank you very much for joining us. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm so grateful that the, the link did not break down. Uh, this went better than I could have hoped. <laughs> Likewise, for, uh, we're very grateful. <laughs> see all of you. <laughs> Thank you, and we look forward to hearing from you. And uh, have a nice day. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, and enjoy your second dinner. Oh, I'm, I'm going to. No, I'm going to. Nico, when we people are having coffee, I need to have a word with you about something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as the commentator. You know, the title has changed. Uh, uh, what I did was something the same. Uh, developing countries struggle for the right to development. I said, uh, retrospective and prospective African no, 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 no. So, uh, kind of wanted to, uh, to do that. This is a very uh, interesting paper for me to write because it was turned out to be kind of a conversation between Fantuchero and Fantuchero. Uh, which was the me with a, a, a scholar activist of earlier eras, and then my other part as a policy advisor uh, working with government, but also my time with Bertie uh, as the, the UN uh, Special Rapporteur uh, on foreign debt, thanks to their you know, endorsement of the Cubans. That makes my position even more difficult during that time. Uh, so I think he... Uh, the uh, right to development is really uh, kind of uh, uh, it's an umbrella of rights uh, and uh, useful kind of a useful shorthand uh, uh, all right and uh, I try to situate this really in the context of the 
post-1945 uh, uh, struggle for, for independence in Africa. And really, in fact, you can even go back about the 1945 Pan-African Congress uh, here in the UK. Uh, uh, and the whole notion of uh, rights, uh, right to development, uh, has always been embedded in the, in the, in the, in the independence struggle. And uh, what constituted what later came to be called the, the African Nationalist Project was very much influenced, really, a great deal of influence from the UN Charter and the values the UN espoused, even though Africa didn't participate in 1945. It's very much influenced by that, but also, secondly, by, uh, inspired by early nationalist leaders, Diskwe uh, and Krumah, Senghor, and many others that have also had these ideas, what kind of uh, a, new, a new order where the concept of human rights become an important organizing principle of international relations. So in a sense, it was very much influenced, and we go back, the post-independence era, you know, the 1960s, what I call the, the golden years, uh, was very much uh, inspired by these values of the UN system and African countries embarked on a whole national development project. Uh, social economic crisis, uh, development. So the nationalist project had a lot embedded in it, a human rights language, an internationalism, uh, a whole principle of the UN system. The question that comes really, how quickly that the nationalist project uh, uh, lost its foundation from the 1970s uh, onward. Consequently, with the, 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 the impact of the, the Cold War was uh, played uh, loudly, uh, very much involved uh, a whole series of activities that took place in the 1960s and the 1970s. But as we really enter about the 1980s, is really where the, the what I call the demise of the ideas of the right to development, particularly with uh, the whole ascendancy of neoliberalism from the 1980s onward. How that shifted the debate, uh, the debate on, on the right to development. And, and for me, particularly during that period, sitting in Washington, the first phase of the whole structural adjustment program period, an increasing shift in changes in the capacities of Afghan state, the reorientation of development, so, or the focus more about corporate rights as opposed to human rights. The debate has been begin, begin to, to shift in that case. Uh, so I think the 1980s uh, period was a really a watershed moment. It was not only an African, but it was a global shift in terms of ideology and orientations of development strategies, the role of the state, the role of private actors, the role of citizens. So I try to situate the, the sort of a, give some background to, 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 uh, to the African condition. But I think at the end of the day, the whole uh, right to development is uh, to put the human set in a person at the center of development. Uh, it talked about the, the need to development should be respectful uh, to all human rights, uh, including uh, the right to participation. Uh, development should promote social justice. But of course, the confusion comes in really when it comes to interpreting it in terms of the national versus the international obligations issue. Uh, the debate, I think, particularly at least in the in, in the Commission for Human Rights, <laughs> uh, uh, was you know 
series of annual meetings, the divisions between the North and South. For the North, they think it is a, uh, a plot for a developing country to get more aid out of us, uh, debate. Uh, so the question of international obligation uh, became a critical, critical uh, debate. And uh, at least at least in my time during being a special rapporteur, I thought we were, we actually contributed to the controversy. Uh, because we are independent, the special rapporteurs are independent of it. Right? We are, uh, have to go back, fact finding. The, the, the report that has come up, particularly the, the, the uh, in my case, I was dealing mostly on uh, uh, debt and structural adjustment. There was a rapporteur from Uganda dealing with the subcommittee on globalization, uh, the rapporteurs on the right to food, the right to education. Good presenting evidence that was that was challenging the status quo of the 1980s and the 1990s for neoliberalism. I was rem I remember actually being taken on the side by the uh, person leading the U.S. delegation. Uh, uh, but once they they found out I was an American, <laughs> and I was taken to the side, kind of got got you know what are you doing? You know this is. An American, you're asking, you know, uh, you know, raising these questions that we should not be questioned. It was all about really the connection between trade, investment, globalization, its impact on, on human rights. So, at, at the practical level, what what uh, what is very clear to me was that the there appears to be a gap between between the UN human rights standard setting mechanism. And the current, the kind of the, the development thinking. So decisions that was reached at the UN uh, arena, particularly the UN conference continuum processes from Copenhagen uh, onwards, uh, which led, of course, to the World Summit of Social Development in 1990, and the new human rights. There was a disconnect there. So I thought the Human Rights Council, what was, what was going on there, was become much more divisive rather than element of the right to development was actually being discussed or implemented in the context of the, the conference continuum from the 1990s onward. Uh, the, the key, uh, at, at the theoretical level also, there were was, was issues involved that have to do uh, the whole, again, the continuous, I think, if you look into goal eight of the MDG on uh, partnership and goal 17 now under the SDGs, uh, there's an element of what you call mutual commitment and shared responsibilities in a partnership approach to, to development. Uh, and how to, to, how to monitor, how to implement this commitment by all parties, what are the appropriate and effective accountability and enforcement uh, mechanism was one issue. Second was the, the practical impact of human rights-based approaches to development, including uh, distinguishing between human rights as inspirational uh, force and their function in facilitating the use of the use of legal law and uh, judicial and administrative uh, measures. The third element involved, particularly these areas, the impact of globalization uh, on the realization of human rights, in, you know, debt, uh, uh, trade, uh, investment issues, those dynamics. Those are the areas the Americans and others were very protective. We could talk about all human rights, but this is this is a fundamental 
principles in which the world is going to be around. That's the area which became extremely very controversial when you link human rights and globalization issue. A component of globalization that have to do with debt, trade, and investment, investment issue. So why was the core debate during, during this time? Uh, because it was a very highly politicized environment, you know. But they have to come and protect us sometimes because I, I think the the conditions uh, during that period, particularly the international context. So within the Commission, I think the developing country was to have some kind of uh, framework argument or a convention. And uh, the Western countries said you cannot legislate it as, as a binding, as a binding treaty. Uh, binding in a sense that it will actually then uh, impose upon us a commitment to, to deal with developing countries. So the argument was that there's no legally binding obligations to provide aid, and secondly, the, su the suggestion that non-state actors, such as international organizations, can be, can be duty holders, uh, that states may hold uh, human rights claims against other states. This was a problematic debate. But of course, I have my own my own issue during my period during that time, particularly with the uh, many of the rapporteurs that were come from a legal background. <laughs> I'm a political economist, and and I I have this tension: Are we pushing this thing too much? Uh, can we have this debate in such a way to be connected to the other UN processes? Uh, that way, you kind of build up what what is possible within that context. Uh, but of course, you know, the developing countries also do not like what is meant by right-based approach. They see that as another form of conditionality. Uh, so there was also resistance on their part. Anything that has to do with human rights approach create legal rights uh, that could be claimed against them by the uh, beneficiaries of development assistance. I think my analysis really leads me to believe that there was a number of actually similar, this was called a retrospective view, that there's a number of similarities between the right to development and the certain development practices already. Uh, uh, and the, the case could have put me forward to show that actions undertaken to realize uh, mutual commitment and shared responsibilities uh, for development could constitute the current, you know, the, the, uh, current manner in which the right to development is being implemented at the national international level. But it was also interesting to me because I remember when Matt Mark Brown was uh, appointed out to, to, to be the head of UNDP. And it was his first meeting meeting all the UNDP rep representatives in Namibia. And what was very clear to me was, I mean, UNDP used to have a small human rights unit. The idea was to mainstream human rights uh, through that process. But there was a problem within UNDP when you try, try to deal with uh, 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 country representatives. And the way, I mean, there was a resistance inside within the UN system also, uh, you know, even within the UNDP uh, system. So the, the, the core element is, is really that the, the responsibility uh, 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 that the, the right to development simply cannot be reduced to just international development assistance, nor can it be reduced in the national poverty eradic eradication paper. It was very interesting. Uh, <laughs> there was a, 
piece I read today by Philip Ashton, remember? Yeah, he was very lambasting with the World Bank uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, and we've been taking for a ride for a long time. They, don't, they are no serious. But it's interesting during that time because uh, Jim Wilkinson was the president of the bank. The PRSP, the poverty reduction papers, was all over the place. We managed actually to Jim Wilkinson finally to actually, we actually, the, the, uh, your office actually did a very thorough assessment uh, of the, uh, the human rights implications of the poverty reduction strategy paper. And then we actually linked that when the HIPIC initiative was created, uh, Wilsonson actually agreed. I think the first case we did was to Honduras. Honduras, Nicaragua, right after Hurricane Mitch, and then Zambia with HIV AIDS. So we made some inroad inside the World Bank because of the person, Wilsonson, against the resistance. There was some element. So you kind of have, came to the conclusion, it's not about getting a law enacted but a kind of conduct enacted. It is just sometimes you have to navigate through the policy processes and see if you can get a buy-in in, 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 into the process. But at the, at the, at the international agenda, certainly, it is, you know, five One is, of course, the issue of greater, uh, more effective participation by developing countries in the international economic decision uh, issues. Second, have to do with the, how you create a truly uh, open multilateral trading uh, system reflecting developing uh, countries. I remember was a debate we used to have with uh, Pascal Lame when he used to be uh, the head of the WTO, trying to get the WTO also to buy on some of this issue uh, on the whole question of any financial uh, international financial architecture uh, relating to resources for uh, productive investment. Uh, and finally, a sort of an effective uh, prevention uh, uh, response capacity uh, to deal with the uh, uh, financial crisis issues. Uh, so there was a, limit, a lot of the good ideas actually came from the, the NGO community, lazing through the UN system in such a way how you can really uh, introduce uh, uh, mainstream human rights uh, uh, issues within, within the development policy. Uh, of course, uh, I haven't followed that very clearly. The, the demand, particularly in the commissions, would be how a permanent follow-up mechanism, uh, some uh, you know, in favor of you know, a convention or a framework convention, or at least a mechanism to monitor the implementation of the right to development at the international level. There has not been really a real consensus uh, on the development uh, concept. And so the SGD, the Sustainable Development Goals, I do have a lot of questions about it. I mean, I have, I have not tried to, to do a more critical perspective about SDG here uh, uh, in the context of this paper. I was more focused about maintaining, what did you call Bertie? The scaffolding. And then this work about the planning. The planning is about a process because there have been cases. If, if you look Gabi, if you, you look in the mid 1970s, the river blindness uh, 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 in West Africa, there was area with single issue areas that have been able to be the international consensus. Uh, so uh, I said, okay, 
the day I was finishing this paper was the signing of the, you know, the Sustainable Development Goal, so it was too premature to criticize it. But I said, okay, let's talk about what the process uh, rather, because the idea is you need to maintain it. And then, of course, at the end of the day, uh, in as much of all of us have our own views and cynicism about the UN system, but that's the only system we have. I mean, that's the only thing we have right now. So we have to make it work. So, so find a strategic entry point how to advance the human rights agenda given uh, with all its complexities rather than the focus. I think my irritation during the commission was, uh, was the insistence we should have a binding treaty, convention. I said, my gosh, there are, we have so many binding conventions, nobody give a damn anyway. You know, you know, let, let's, let's work more really on strategically how we can push the agenda in many ways. So that's why I've not bothered to take on uh, more critique of the uh, SGDs, although I have my own uh, my own views uh, on that also. So again, I, I think historically, uh, when you look into the African context, the right to development has been, has been central to the nationalist project. It's been there. You know, where we have gone, where we have failed, is another issue. But right now, in terms of how, how we move post post-1980 period, in this environment, you know, where do we go? Uh, again, we need to find, you know, how do you build an international consensus around issues? Not in, in the entire package, but if we can make progress in education on one level, progress on gender equality, it's an incremental process. Uh, it's not a package that we have to do. So I still believe, I think, the UN system is the best we can do. That's what we have. There's no other, other system. The question is, uh, we need to sort of focus in terms of entry points, strategies, building consensus around the critical area that adds up. In fact, you go back to the last 10, 12 UN conferences, which I've included in the paper, you know, they may not have been dramatic. Some have been absolutely successful. Some have been not successful. But it was an incremental process of advancing the ideas. Or you know, realizing the, the right to develop. I'll stop right here. Thank you, thank you, Funky. And uh, you know, it, you you ended with the idea that the UN is the only system that we have, and so we have to stick to it. And I'm, um, I think my my paper sort of strikes a mindly discordant note. Uh, you know, to, to again, to the again, again. again. <laughs> but last year, this is a free country, so. Um, as, as, the point that I'm trying to make, uh, or rather the key argument that I'm trying to hope, uh, I, I hope the chapter tries to achieve, is that essentially multilateralism hasn't worked in the context of what we call catching up or the process of structural transformation, especially within the rubric of the UN system. It's, it's, there was a mandate, historically the UN did begin with a mandate for economic development, but somewhere along the way that, that mandate was abdicated to, to the Bretton Woods institutions and they weren't uh, certainly able to carry on uh, uh, the work at all in terms of uh, helping developing countries go through the process of what, what economists call structural transformation, that is move from a low productive, low wage agrarian sector to a high productive, to a more productive, high wage, high value added, hugely manufacturing sector. And the reason for this has been um, 
uh, as, as you know, begin uh, in the introduction, is that whether it was Geneva, whether it was Havana, or whether it was uh, indeed uh, Bretton Woods, the problem was for the developed countries that were driving the process then, economic development at that point in time meant currency stabilization and full employment. It meant stopping the policies of, of you know, the, the trade policies which were better than neighbor, which were, uh, in the, which were you know, prevalent in the interwar years. So the idea that development needed to encompass, uh, you know, whether, it, whether we call it, um, uh, you know, economic growth in terms of catching up or economic growth in terms of structural uh, change never really was part of the agenda. Though, though having said that, uh, the UN Charter actually, I think it was Article 55 that I guess it was Article 55 of the UN Charter, which lays out very clearly that the aims of full employment and conditions of economic and social progress and development, uh, among other developmental aims. And um, in 1951, it was the ECOSOC which was mandated to carry on these activities. But Due to the global distribution of power, due to the fact that it was uh, uh, the U.S. which was beginning to take the reins of uh, both the IMF and the World Bank, we see the ECOSOC becoming more and more inconsequential where economic development was concerned, and this mandate was actually taken on by the Bretton Woods institutions. As a result, it was pretty much left to the developing countries to, uh, to move towards the aim of structural transformation, but that came much later. So the idea is that it existed as a sort of normative aspiration. We can see that in the development decades. We can see that in the creation of the NIEO. But in terms of something that was practical and actionable, that, that didn't, didn't really happen. And uh, the reason that I posit for uh, why this, this didn't happen is structural transformation or catching up has a lot of internal political dynamics, which might not be very suitable to a multilateral framework or a multilateral regulatory framework. Structural transformation is about changing distribution of benefits. It's about creating benefits for a set of people. There are winners and losers. It's a very, very internally fraught political process. That might be one reason why the multilateral framework actually doesn't work. Uh, that's, that's one. And the other, of course, is if you look at what the NIEO was, it, though it began with some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, corrective rather than cooperative movement with the developed nations, and, and it was more about an economic agenda, the idea of technology transfer within the developing countries at that time would have been counterproductive. There was really not much technology really to transfer between, uh, between the developing uh, countries at that point in time. The technology that was really needed to be redistributed at this time, and even today, remains with a clutch of developed countries. And, and some few developing countries have moved over to the other side, China in, in, in a very large respect, Brazil, perhaps India, Malaysia. Certainly, the NIEs and really industrialized economies have made that transition. But most of the other countries, most of the African countries, a lot of the Latin American countries, a lot of South Asia, remain sort of locked in place uh, with, with highly unproductive, uh, unproductive economies. And the, the reason why the NIE, of course, didn't work, uh, as I said, one was it was, it was more, more a demand for political recognition rather than being able to do anything in terms of the economic transformation. The other, of course, was... Um, the huge collective action problems within the NIU itself. It began on the back of, uh, uh, you know, the, the commodity pricing. It, it, it began with the oil price uh, 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 shooting up, and then somewhere it lost its way because you had big oil producers like like Saudi Arabia, which decided to break rank, weren't willing to uh, provide oil at concessional rates to other de developing countries. They obviously had their own markets to cater to, which were the larger Western uh, economies, and. The NIEO faltered at a very, very important juncture. Uh, even though it was, it was, um, it definitely was a very uh, important 
collective that was forming at that point in time. So uh, the, the article begins with setting this history up, but talking about the fact that there was initially in the 1950s and even to the 1960s, the ECOSOC trying to make um, some sort of moves in this direction, but even uh, giving development to the poorest African countries move, moves to the World Bank through the IDA, even though that was supposed to remain with the General Assembly at that point in time. But that doesn't happen. There were small successes, you could call um, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, granting of ODA, which, of course, as a percentage of GDP, didn't really hit, hit the amount of 1%, but after the Monterey Conference, things started moving up in, in, in little uh, dribs and drabs. Uh, there, there is the NIEO, which can be considered as one, one small success, though, though short-lived and, and, and uh, not very well planned. <coughs> and finally, technical assistance, which is, um, which is something that the UN still does well. And the UNCTAD, and I haven't spent much time because there's been enough work on the UN done by the UN Intellectual History Project, which you know, Tom's been at the forefront of in terms of documenting the work of the UNCTAD. But even the UNCTAD also was just limited itself, limited itself to trade at that point in time, never really took the bull by the horns, which was how do you catch up with the developed countries? How do you, how do you undergo the process of structural transformation? So the first part of it is the introduction. The second part of it talks about uh, uh, some of the small successes that I, uh, that I just outlined uh, in front of you. And the second part of it, actually, uh, the, the, the third part of it, which pretty much I think is, is the heart of the article, actually sets up that there were perhaps four periods of multilateralism uh, between 1945 and uh, 2015. The first was, of course, uh, you know, in San Francisco, Bretton Woods, it was, it was really... Um, uh, um, the creation of the United Nations, it was the creation of uh, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions. Uh, those, those were the idea, th that was one multilateral moment. There was another multilateral moment which, um, which was uh, uh, in terms of, when I, when I say multilateral moment, I say it in terms of how uh, economic policy making was, was agreed upon. And the other, at this point, at the World Bank in the 1950s, as well as in, in, the, in the form of USSR, you had the paradigm of state-led development, which perhaps might be stretching it a little too far, but the idea that the state can be involved, that import substituting industrialization can work, became, uh, became sort of the, uh, the economic idea of, of a, few, a few years during that decade. The next, we come to the 1980s, which is really the decade of uh, neoliberal economics. It's the, uh, it's the decade of free market economics. And uh, more and more developing countries uh, take to that simply because, uh, especially in Africa, and, uh, and Latin America because they've just come off the back of huge debt crises, uh, you know, uh, spike in commodity prices, so, and, and ISI had failed. And ISI hadn't failed, and this is the point that I make, ISI hadn't failed because it was a state-led development paradigm. ISI had failed because the policies that these states, states undertook was actually far too ambitious, ambitious for the enforcement capability that they had. It wasn't that the state-led paradigm was wrong, it was that what they had tried to attempt was far too ambitious for, for their capabilities. And, um, the other multilateral moment that I uh, that I pick up really is it's, it's a far more feeble one. Perhaps the current current moment that we uh, we are now witnessing post 2008, post the global financial crisis, which is which is the questioning of of the free market paradigm, the questioning of the fact that um, liberalisation is always good, opening up your markets and deregulation always works, in conjunction with the fact that a country like China has actually grown with a completely different economic and obviously political norm from what uh, the de developed countries have, have uh, uh, led us to believe. And um, that, that sets up the third um, and uh, final section of the article. But before that, I'd, I'd also like to introduce the idea of 
what redistribution is because uh, what the title has is growth and redistribution and the point that I'd like to make is the idea of redistribution cannot just be something like tipping. The idea of redistribution can't be a lump sum transfer. The idea of uh, you know, uh, redistribution cannot be just let's, let's write off debt. The idea of redistribution, if we really have to think of redistribution, the idea of redistribution is to distribute finance in a manner to developing economies, whether they're actually able to finance their projects of capability development. And this, this idea of capability development is very different from the same idea of capability development. It's not, not so much the human rights approach. In fact, it's pretty much Mushtaq's work that I uh, refer to a lot of it, which is you develop organizational capabilities for firms that based on a certain kind of conditional arrangement, which is that you provide firms with incentives, but you also provide firms with compulsions to make sure that the, invest, uh, the incentives translate into productivity growth, which sounds simple, but it's actually a, a, a very, very nuanced idea of what development for finance should be, which essentially means that you need a discipline, disciplining mechanism from the outside for the inside, which is very, very difficult to uh, engineer uh, when you're talking about developing countries, when you're talking about their policy space, to, to implement as independent sovereign nations. You're talking about um, making sure that these state, these governments are actually able to uh, make sure that the finance provided by the developed economies is used for industrial development, is used for structural transformation, or as we say in economics, the rents don't get captured. It's very easy for rents to get captured. Um, we, have, we have certainly seen instances of growth. We have seen South Korea, we have seen Taiwan, where uh, rents or the, the, the incentives or the subsidies that are created by these kind of industrial policies are actually are actually used for industrial growth, and it worked because there was a certain there was a particular kind of distribution of power in South Korea, which didn't exist in Pakistan. In Pakistan and South Korea had very similar kinds of industrial policies. One succeeded, and the other didn't. So there's a very very specific reason for that. And we live in a you know this is 1945 and, and 2015, and what what was possible in the 1950s and 60s is definitely not going to be possible now, uh, which is why I said found mm-hmm. that I s- struck a slightly discordant note, which is it, given, given the, um, the constraints in terms of the disciplining mechanism that we are talking about, it is difficult to operate within a multilateral framework. Now, we do have alternative multilateral uh, uh, you know, avenues opening up. You know, the AIID is a very good example. The BRICS Bank is a very good example. Uh, the idea, the, the thing to see is, are these actually going to be competitors to the IMF and the World Bank, or has their time at all come? Indeed, are they are they going to be able to challenge the distribution of power that still sustains the IMF and the World Bank? And um, uh, my answer to that is not not really, because the only other competing sort of framework is the Chinese framework. And unlike the Americans, and this is something that I touched upon very briefly in the article, unlike the Americans, the Chinese don't really have an ideology to peddle. They, they, they don't want African countries to, to follow their path of development. The Americans wanted all of us to take up free market ideologies and then they maybe pass on uh, technology or, 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 or uh, help you industrialize, though not quite so directly. So, and, and China will take decades to catch up to American levels of productivity. So even looking to China to provide a sort of alternative multilateral framework is, is perhaps wishful thinking on, on the part of other developing economies. So, but... I obviously don't want to strike a completely pessimistic note because I don't believe it's it's all 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 pessimism and cynicism out there. It's probably the right time now to to look for some kind of multilateral framework because a small opening has been opened up. 
if ever since Bretton Woods, uh, the relative distribution of power has started to move towards developing economies. And I, I know we've had this, this, this discussion about essentializing and worldism uh, in, in the first, um, first session, but I think it's important to at least simplify for the, matters of, for, for the matter of this particular level of analysis that um, there is a certain kind of distribution of power that is moving towards developing economies. And given the fact that the global financial crisis has at least raised doubts about the free market paradigm and the whole paradigm of liberalization and privatization, there is perhaps there are perhaps two forces that could be used if, if um, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the maybe the U.S. decides to join the AIIB. UK has already decided to join the uh, Asian Infrastructure Bank. If, if developments like that can happen, we might be able to see a development of an alternative uh, multilateral framework which could be able to devise policies keeping in mind the distribution of power within developing countries and incentivize policy making and, and finance uh, for, for catching up in structural transformation in a manner that's actually more conducive to internal, internal polit political dynamics than be foisted upon from the outside. That's, that's what I have to say in the paper. So. Thank you. Uh, we must uh, apologize to Mushtaq for this project has mercilessly exploited his goodwill in phase one and phase two. Only last time you were via satellite from Bangladesh, this time we pleased to have you in the same <laughs> Thank you. Please. And apologies for the typo for your, for your name in the agenda. I just realized that. That's my fault. Mr. H. As long as you know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like the two papers. I think they're important papers in terms of uh, the discourse. There are obviously things that I, I think could have been done better. I'm going to talk about it, but please don't take that as things you need to do or you need to even take into account. This is just my, my thoughts on it. I think they're, they're fine as they are. Um, I think there's one thing that would be quite interesting if the papers actually talk to each other because they're saying some quite similar things but they're also saying quite different things. And from a reader's perspective, if they were in the same issue of the journal, some cross-referencing of what's going on might be, but I mean, again, this is up to you. So for example, both papers agree that enforceable international agreements and charters on rights and so on is not the way forward, but for different reasons, right? So, so I think two papers take different positions on that. They also say that the internal problems of developing countries are critically important, but for different reasons, and they give completely different solutions to that. Um, they also say that the multilateral framework has to expand the space for development, but the way in which the existing framework squeezes the space for development is different in the two papers, um, and the, the proposals for expanding it are also different. So there's quite a lot of um, um, dialogue possible between the papers here, which would also, in a sense, simplify what's significant about them. I think in both papers, there is a tendency, though this is very difficult in brief papers to do anything about, but maybe a sentence, to treat the North and the South as blocks. The North is highly diverse, and the conflicts of interest between the North are intense, and so between countries in the South. So the BRICs famously have nothing in common except the name. Right? So and, and they have huge conflicts of interest between them. Um, and the second thing that I think is common to both papers, which probably needs to be improved a, a little bit, is that 
they're more like essays which set out an argument, but actually there's an intense analytical debate on these issues, and some reference to that literature on different perspectives here would be very easy to do, but it also make it more acceptable to academic referees. Um, yeah, so this is just general. Okay, let me go to some specific points on the two papers, starting with Fandrews, um, and then I'll go on to Pallavis. Um I think the way you presented the paper, Fandru, was much better in some sense than, I think in both your cases, the paper <laughs> written was, was much more difficult to... Is this being recorded? Okay, so in the paper that, that you wrote, there's a lot of stuff which is quite controversial but which controversial from an academic perspective, but very straightforward in terms of the global discourse. So, and, and that's precisely the problem. So, for example, you say that what I liked about your paper is to say that it's, it's kind of hinted at, but should be said more explicitly, that the neoliberal agenda and structural adjustment and all the rest of it was not just a rich man's conspiracy to destroy the third world, although there might have been a little bit of that, it was also a response to something which was brewing inside the developing world for its internal problems, namely debt crisis, namely subsidies going out of control, public sector enterprises which didn't perform, etc., etc. Right? And quite rightly, you say that this is a problem, and we need to address that. Fine, but the way you say, you know, what is the solution to this, is a whole list of things which are quite part of now the amended neoliberal agenda, the amended neoliberal agenda includes good governance, but you've included all this good governance stuff uncritically as the solution. That's very problematic because there's a huge debate on this precisely in the literature between good governance understood as the goals of development and good governance understood as preconditions of development. Right. So, for example, you say that... Um, the explanation for the collapse of the um, Africa is unaccountable elites engaging in patron-client politics with a lot of corruption, and the answer is democratic accountability. Right? Now, that's the goal, but is that a precondition? Because if that was a precondition, you couldn't explain South Korea, you couldn't explain Taiwan, you couldn't explain China, which all grew with massive amounts of patron-client politics and corruption and unaccountable governments, and some of them still do. So, What's the goal and what's the precondition? And there's a huge debate on this, right? So the literature is very rich on this. You refer to Peter Evans, who is one person, which is a bit outdated. But there's a big literature on. And then you slide from saying, well, all these good governance conditions need to be met, including accountable democracies and low corruption and illicit flows have to be, etc., etc. And then you say we also need developmental states. And those are two quite different parts of the literature because the people who support developmental states are usually quite critical of the good governance agenda. Although that you could interpret that in some kind of overlapping way, but they're actually quite different literatures. And so coming from Ethiopia, I can see why you jump into developmental states, but you also pay a lot of lip service to good governance, and, we, and the reader doesn't really get the tension there. And this is precisely the issue. Right? The, the, the issue is that there is a lot of global controversy 
about what drives development, what drives the structural changes that Pallavi was referring to, and we cannot agree. And that's one reason why we can't agree about global standards, which um, everyone will sign up to, the Chinese and the South Africans and the Indians and the Malawians and the Bangladeshis will all sign up to, because we don't agree about those things now. And I think the problem is even more fundamental. We cannot agree about those things because the institutions and politics which drive growth successfully are structurally different in different countries. In other words, the institutions and politics that drove growth in China can only be understood in terms of Chinese history and would not work in Nigeria. Right? You could not transplant them and say, let's have those rights and institutions enshrined in, Niger in Bangladesh or wherever, and you will have Chinese outcomes. You will not. So this is why I think, in that sense, this is a, a little bit what Pallavi was also saying, that there is a structural issue in, time, in, in trying to universalize what are actually quite discrete and distinct processes of development, except in terms of some really supra-broad issues of protecting the poor and not killing people and not doing injustice, etc. We can agree about those. But the more specific things about what actually needs to be done in terms of the right to development, what does it mean, is um, divisive, is conflictual, is very country-specific, and so on. So here is a problem which perhaps needs to be highlighted as a problem instead of being instead of us being given simple solutions that if you did all these good governance things and if you had a developmental state, you would have development. There's no evidence that anyone can do those things and achieve development. So these are problematic um, questions. Then, um, so, so there are two sets of reasons why you can't have this universalism. One is that the economic structures and histories of countries are different, so what you need to do is different because you know, what you produced in the past, your agrarian structures, property rights structures that you've inherited are different. But they're also different in terms of their political structures, so what can be enforced is different, right? So the two together make makes effective developmental transformations very context-specific. And I think we need to, we need to recognize that up front. So, Multilateralism has a role in setting minimum standards, and though minimum standards could be quite high, but I can't see it setting a set of rules that if everyone followed, you would have developed. And that is precisely the problem of good governance. Good governance tries to establish a set of rules that if everyone could enforce, you would have developed. The problem is it can't even be enforced, and if it couldn't be enforced, it would not probably result in anything very much. Then you have a discussion of MDGs and SDGs, which is changing gear completely, right? The MDGs and SDGs were not quite in the same league as trying to achieve the right to development. These are simply setting some outcomes which countries are monitored against as goals. And you're right to say you have lots of problems with them. Everyone has lots of problems with them. One big problem with them is that the fact that you've hit some MDG target doesn't say anything about your development because the MDGs distort the focus of governments and aid donors so they pump money into meeting a particular target even though the rest of the economy remains dirt poor and underdeveloped. Right? So the fact that you've 
met your target on literacy or you've met your target somewhere else, doesn't actually say you've reached a higher level of development. Because there's a lot of distortion going on with goals-based assessment, which are not really talking about have you changed the structure of your economy, the productivity of your economy, and so on. So again, it's confusing the outcome with the means, like good governance confuses the outcome with the means. Um, yeah. So I've written out stuff which I can hand to you. I mean, I mean you can, if some of it might be. You really had fun with this, eh? It's, it's <laughs> really it's fun, yeah. Well, <laughs> so I think that's basically, I, I, I mean, um, I'll stop then, go on to Pallavi's paper, which raises exactly the same sorts of issues but from a different perspective. So I think, again, quite interesting. So in, with your paper, I m agree with it more because we work together more and so on, so I understand <laughs> what you're saying. But I think the way it's presented could be really improved. Um, so for example, when you start off, you say the UN and the ECOSOC, but why not mention the UNDP and UNCTAD and UNITO and all the other agencies through which um, the UN has tried to engage in the global development discourse, which have been more important than ECOSOC. And I say this with a lot of feeling because I work with an ECOSOC committee and I'm on the Committee of Experts on Public Administration. So I know ECOSOC, but I must say ECOSOC is completely irrelevant. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's more irrelevant than some of the other things. Um, I think also you need to say up front in the very first paragraph or two what the basic argument of this paper is because it gets embroiled very quickly in Hirschman versus Rostow and all kinds of things and I mean I don't, you know it, one gets lost so you need to be bang 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 what do you say and I think that what what you're saying is quite important right that is that one of the main things you seem to be saying is that the powers that be in the 1940s did not let the UN deal with the big financial flows of driving development because they weren't sure that their money was safe with the UN because of the UN's accountability, precisely because the UN was more accountable. Right? So they wanted to manage the money through organizations over which they had more control, which is not peculiar because it's their money, right? So if you're the investor, you want to make sure that your money is going through organizations that over which you have more control. And the Bretton Woods institutions provided that. And so from the beginning, and this kind of touches on the point that Dan made earlier, right? That economic power and political power have always been mismatched in this whole discourse. So why do you expect people with the money to give it to you know, 100 and something countries and now 200 something countries to control, most of whom don't contribute anything, but will have a say in how it's spent, which is very idealistic, but not realistic. So, you, so from day one, that's not how it happened. So this is one of the starting points of your paper, that the UN started off with a development agenda without any money. And the money was going through the federal institutions because those were institutions with the voting power, etc., were more aligned with who was paying the money. 
Then you have a whole series of discussions about how the South tried to get back. So you have, a, you have these multilateral phases of, of, um, of different types, and the NIEO, the New International Economic Order, was one, but the NIEO was basically a failure, and then you have another, what we call a weaker moment, which is the current one. And I think the third point, and, and, and I think you need to put that somehow in the first paragraph. The third point that you make is that this multilateral moment when the Chinese with their money and the New Development Bank and the AIIB and others are breaking into this global financing game faces the same problems as the first moment, right? That once again you have an, a disparity between the economic power the only thing that's happened is now the Chinese are in on the game, with the distribution of, of voting power of countries. And so will the Chinese <coughs> latch on to global rules? And there's a lots of signs that that's exactly what they want to do. The, the AIIB will simply follow the World Bank's rules because that's what you would do. If you, I mean, if you are a, a donor and you're giving your money out and lots of people are at the table, you want a set of rules that protects your money, right? And the World Bank, through a long period, has evolved those kinds of rules. And the Chinese, whenever they go and invest in Bangladesh, for example, in a multilateral way, they want global contract enforcement in the same way that the World Bank wants. So at that level, there is no difference between the Chinese and And I think, so what you are saying, therefore, is that nevertheless, because of the, the Chinese being closer to the development end of the scale than the Americans, they might understand better what needs to be done in terms of working in countries where the politics and the conditions are closer to the patron-client end of things than the good governance end of things. So this is the only difference. Now, the only difference is that the Chinese are a, 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 a power which has recently emerged from from really um, LDC status, and therefore they are more in tune with the politics and governance conditions of those countries. That's all, actually. But they also will make sure that they don't waste their money and that their money doesn't get captured. And they will make, they will take every step to ensure contract enforcement and so on in the way the World Bank does. Somehow you need to summarize the core arguments in the first um, paragraph. I think that that. <laughs> no, or the first three paragraphs. <laughs> because it's a very complex argument. It's not a simple the paper. Is not simple to read. And reading it, you know, you get lost in all kinds of things, and it ends up. Uh, okay, so in terms of the content of the paper, I think there are three broad issues that you're making, and maybe there, there should be sections. The first issue is, and here I think you're, you're saying something different from Fantu's paper, is that the conditions for the effective financing of development are quite complex. Right? So Fantu says, you know, if you have these conditions, developmental state, effective bureaucracy, etc., et and you're saying, no, actually the, the conditions for effective financing might be quite complex, 
because you're actually talking about financing broad-based capability development. You want to see the creation of lots of productive enterprises, firms, farms, whatever, across the country and across sectors. And this is a tremendously difficult task. And it depends on your initial conditions and your political conditions and so on and so on. And to do that financing, you need to have conditions enforced on the recipients of that financing, which are A, enforceable, and which depends on the political context, and B, compels them not to waste that money, or at least reduces the chances of failure. And so maybe a few examples of this, what that means, would be helpful, right? So think of examples of, let's say, the Indian automobile industry, why did it succeed? Or the pharmaceutical industry or garments in Bangladesh, why did it succeed? And compare that to all kinds of other financing which failed. So within the same context, very small differences in financing arrangements can be successful. This is the first, I think, big point you're making. The second big point you're making is that those conditions will vary. You don't need to write it down. I've written it down. Vary from country to country. Right? So I think this is the second big point. Again, there's an interesting debate between universalizable conditions of development and an argument which says the, the conditions which will work in a country have to be devised with that country in mind. And to some extent, the reason why the Chinese are succeeding is because they, they implicitly do that. So when they go and lend to Somalia, they don't impose the same conditions that they impose on India or, or Bangladesh. Because they know that these are completely different situations and we are taking different risks here and therefore we will have different expectations. So they're not acting like the World Bank? They're not acting like the World Bank. Because that sounded a little bit contradictory in terms of what yeah. you said earlier, that they want yes. to do exactly the same system. Yes. So, but what I was saying earlier was when they go into multilateral lending, okay. when they're in a consortium, yeah. then they protect their money. Okay. When they lend to Somalia, they get a Chinese company to build a road mm -hmm. on Chinese money, sure. and they make sure that is delivered. Sure. Right? And they, they might even import the workers from China. Mm -hmm. right? So they have complete control over those investments yeah. in which they are the sole investors. But when you are making a power station in Bangladesh, the Chinese provide the, the machines, um, somebody else provides the generators, somebody else provides the construction, somebody else provides the land, and a whole consortium of people are lending, then the Chinese insist on contracting. Mm -hmm. right? And they're then no different from the World Bank, mm -hmm. and they, they will not go in if the contract enforcement is weak. So that's, that's what I was saying. And the third point that you're making, I think, which is a really interesting point, which only comes up in the last section towards the end, and, and, and that's the issue of the global political settlement and how that's changing with the entry of China in the BRICS. And I kind of agree with you that the only country of the BRICS that matters is China. They're the only country which has the financial power to make a difference to this game. Everybody else has a voice, but they're not putting 20, 30, 50 billion dollars on the oh. table. So how does China's hundreds of billions of dollars change that game? And that is a complex statement, which I think we just summarized, that when they're doing their own stuff, they take the risk, but they have complete control. But if you did that, then 
the, the Americans also do the same, right? So if the Americans go in and occupy a country, they will not go through contracting. They will control the whole process. And perhaps the Americans <laughs> mess up their people, but then that's a different story. But, but in terms of the multilateralism part of it, then China is not just going to give their money to developing countries and say, let's hope for the best. They will want contracts. And here is where the only space opens up. The space that opens up is that if, as you said, as if you imagine, the Americans go into the AIIB and other such multilateral um, agencies where the Chinese are big players, will they allow slightly different rules to be instituted? And will the Americans put in their global enforcement capacity behind those rules? Because remember that the reason why the Chinese follow contracting rules which are underpinned by the Americans, because ultimately, without the American support, contract enforcement at the global level is still not credible. Right? Because you could default on a Chinese loan and get away with it, because most of your activity is not good. But So that's why the Chinese piggyback on American enforcement, because it's much more difficult to default on a World Bank or an IMF, because you then get punished on a whole variety of fields. Right? So the question is, and this will be the really exciting test, which is, would the Americans, in taking a long and, and, and wise decision, say, let's throw in our credibility and our enforcement, etc., behind the Chinese in areas of contractual differences, for example, in capability development investments, which have different terms and conditions from the standard World Bank package? Okay. That would be really exciting, but for most people, they would not really understand what's exciting about it. But I think you need to <laughs> spell that out because, that, because it's, it's really so incremental. But at the, in the kind of world we live in, mm. that incremental would be really exciting. Mm. And anything bigger than that is, I agree with both the authors, you can sign all these big conventions and so on. It doesn't mean much. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you. Very thoughtful comments. I'm not sure that Pallavi has enough paper to print all your comments. <laughs> 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 I'll make it for that. Okay, but but this is smoke. Before we lose all of this, yeah. do you uh -huh. each want to take a, a few minutes and respond? Sure. No, I mean, just to come up with your example of this, uh, a multilateral approach to financing. I mean, we have a big problem in Ethiopia with the, the uh, no, no, the, the, the rail system, or the Addis Ababa rail system, where the Swedes and other European companies uh, are having difficulties with the Chinese because the Chinese are asking a different set of questions than the other one. So it has to be mediated in such a way the construction process goes on. Uh, but I think it's very important observation. I think I appreciate uh, your comment and and write into it, which is great. But I think just my, I've come to the conclusion now, not because I'm working both in Ethiopia and Rwanda, uh, the international environment, international cooperation is very important, but at the end of the day, what nations and states choose to do is as much as important than, uh, than anything else. So in a sense, it's a question of what kind of what, what's commitment to development, those issues are increasingly for me become in a constraining international environment. I think countries can 
can, 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 can take a decision, can take a critical decision, accepting the cost that comes with it. So the question of you know the 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 quality of leadership, the quality of long-term vision, uh, etc., is, is becomes critical. So you're not waiting for the multilateral part. Multilateral is great. I see it increasingly as a supplement uh, uh, to to national efforts. Even if you have a more enabling international environment, if the national context is is dead or going nowhere, you're not even in a position to do it. So, how do you balance this issue, the national, as well as creating that uh, multilateral uh, environment? I mean, I just remember, uh, you know, very well when Mendes decided bold, decisive decision to build the dam. Uh, the question was, you know, how are you going to build it? Okay? I don't know how we're going to finance it, but we're going to build it. I mean, it, it was for them it's a national thing. We have to do this, dead or alive. Uh, and of course, the choice that went is through the, the national approach. I mean, it has some serious consequences and questions we don't know about where, how this thing is going to be realized. And the same thing I feel with, with Rwanda, too. I mean, these are authoritarian development states. Uh, there are no qualm about democracy and human rights issues. What do you call it developmental? They, they call themselves a developmental state. That's what uh, they want to. They, they call themselves developmental. Yeah. Uh, but increasingly, what happens the the national level, I think within a constrained environment, you can still do something to advance the right of, you know, development, inclusivity, etc. Considering there are huge, huge international uh, constraints, but if the international constraint is also enabling, that's a plus. So don't wait for an international agreement, something to happen. Do something while you also constructively play to create that enabling international environment. But there are a number of issues that you've raised, definitely, uh, that I would definitely have to, to, to consider. Uh, very but I, again, I, I do not uh, uh, underestimate the UN uh, conference processes. They may be incremental. Each of them, we got something. Things are discussed, debated. In some cases, uh, you get uh, uh, consensus among not every country, but with some countries who can advance on the education agenda or the gender equality agenda. So uh, how do we make the system, particularly the question of the compliance deficit? Uh, because there's a lot of commitment, but that commitment is not met. So what are the means in which we can improve that system until we find out uh, a very good uh, system of, of working issues? So national become more important. The conference process is that huge shortcomings in it, that it is more an incremental. Uh, uh, because the whole language of uh, uh, human rights is a progressive realization. To the extent I take that language for given, we are getting progressive rea realization of some of those rights in a progressive manner. Uh, it's not going to be a big bang where we're going to solve the problem. But you're right, I think we need to understand uh, the national context. And uh, there are also contradictories in terms of the policy. The policy areas, you know, you know, 
some things that add certain values in, in one level tend to contradict uh, other elements of, 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 of the question. So I would have to go back into those sections on the MDGs and uh, the SDGs have some nuance to it, not, not leave them uh, as they are. Uh, that sense, but this is very highly appreciated. So thank you. Is that really right to the point? Thank you. Much appreciated. Mm. Sounded like I'm back at PhD session with you, but I'm glad you're up back. <laughs> so uh, I have more agency now. So thank you. <laughs> uh, but no, no, much appreciated points about, uh, especially the point that you made about would the Chinese do the same thing. I don't think that comes out very clearly. I don't think it was probably there at the back of my mind, but it's not something that I articulated very well. So. Uh, it, it, it's not going to be politics as usual, but it's going to be much of the same in, in the manner that you explained it. But the reason why there is a multilateral movement is if the Americans jump in with the Chinese and, and we can see something. About the structuring, I completely agree with you. I think I was thinking too hard in terms of putting in too much, and as a result, didn't come up. I, I've come up with a very cohesive structure. I think even while I was speaking to the audience, I felt the speak, speech was much better than, uh, than than what I had actually put in there. It's all there, but I, I need to kind of refocus it. Probably not in one paragraph, but we'll give it a shot in your opening section. Um, and uh, yeah, in terms of you know uh, growth being dependent on the political context and enforceability, I think a few examples would really flesh it out. And and the literature, there is a lot of literature you from you know whether it's you, whether it's Chang, Roderick, <laughs> there is a lot of institutional economic literature that I can actually plug in here, which would make it good for um, the academic referee, for sure. Um, you said you'd give it all in writing, so I didn't take it <laughs> down, but no. Uh, essentially, I think the, the point that you made about um, uh, restructuring and, and bringing out the global distribution of power, the third section, is, is, is very important. Um, there was the only reason I, I completely take on board. I should have put in UNIDO and UNDP. I didn't. UNTAD, I've provided a, f a few many references because a lot of work has already been done on the UNTAD and how much it contributed. So I hadn't done that. The ECOSOC was largely historical, but the ECOSOC was mandated between the 50s. But I made that clear. It probably didn't come out very clearly. Certainly not the ECOSOC as it stands now. And. Um, and also, uh, the, the very important point that you fleshed out, which is that the big powers didn't give the UN money initially because the UN General Assembly would have been more accountable, but they wanted, they wanted uh, you know, to hold on to money that was being spent because it was their money. And that point also needs to come out much more clearly. Um, yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much. Much, much. All right, go ahead. Tom, just one very small point uh, for Roy. I actually thought you were in Deathly Roy. I was uh, so looking forward so very much to meeting you when I uh, saw really the name. Uh, the one thing that I was wondering about, the book you did on UN ideas, yeah. there are two very important figures, Raul Pradesh yeah. and Adebayo Adedeji, mm -hmm. and I used them to write the handbook for David Malone, and those are very important ideas, both in terms of regional organization and the fact Pradesh was head of <laughs> Umtad, and also Adedeji's challenging of the structural adjustment programs. And since this is within a UN context and the South, I'm wondering whether there isn't some space that needs to be occupied here by those debates. Sure.
Yeah, Tom, thanks. First of all, let me just update you. Half time, it's 12 7 for South Africa. Update We'll explain to Tom later what that means. Um, look, look I, mean, I, I do think the, the two papers um, share a lot in common, and that was very comprehensive, by the way. Maybe a bit too maybe a bit too So I'm very impressed. But just as I was struck by your comment about China not having an ideology or not selling mm. an ideology. I was very struck by that. And while I agree though, certainly from an African point of view, they interpret China as having a very marketable ideology, namely state-led development. Mm. So whether China is out there punting this thing, you know, is, is another matter. But in Africa, certainly, that's why they also latch um, onto China. Secondly, um, the Africans gravitate towards China, um, in part also because China does not use the bomb in order to get its way in Africa. I think that, that, that that's, that's very uh, significant for me. Um, and it brings me to to fund to your, your paper and presentation, and I think Ade is right. The alternatives to structural adjustment by Ade yeah. Deji yeah. was done within the context of UNECA in the UN world, yeah. and that was a major yeah. multilateral moment yeah. in Africa yeah. and a moment of African agency, Africa uh, asserting itself. Yeah. And let me just finally zero in on this debate about good governance versus developmentalism. First of all, I think it's important to make the point about the developmental state debate certainly as it's taking place in Africa, is that the Asian Tigers were called developmental ex post facto. Only after they became the, you know, this model did people recognize them. In Africa, we tend to declare ourselves developmental states, but your point is a key one. The jury still out whether the manner in which Africans pursue this developmental state agenda will lead to development. But it seems to me, just finally, that it invokes two very important points. One, isn't the debate in Africa one about democratic development? That really is the debate. And even if it is that, secondly, the question is really about state capacities and state capabilities. You can, you can call yourself developmental. You can pursue the democratic good governance you know, discourse and, and, and policies. Uh, the, the challenge seems to be the capacity of African states, including you know states like South Africa. So I just want to throw that up. Brief reply, Adi. I, I, in my own comments to, to uh, Anatov in particular, I thought yeah. I'd bring that up. And, uh, it's a little self-serving, but I, I actually think that every idea he's talking about has some value added in a UN or a global conference context. And he, he really needs to defend the proposition that ideas matter. Mm. And that some of these uh, come from the South and some of them come from a UN mm. and a Southern context. So I think you're correct. But I'll, I'll say that you said it instead of I. Mm. Okay. <laughs> if I may just say to ideas in terms of the, the political consequences of Adedeji's alternative structure I just met. Your countryman, Bradley uh, Onimode, who died, uh, and I was involved in that in that document. And what is the consequence of why the value? Well, to get rid of it, to bring somebody from the World Bank to head ECA for 12 years. Mm. You yeah. know, they got rid of it. Yeah, it was, it was a heroic failure. I think that's yeah. the best we can <laughs> yeah. say about yeah. it. Yeah. And for 12 years, ECA was run, basically by somebody who had an office, 
the World Bank as well as in Addis Ababa. So you, you couldn't tell whether it was a UN agency or a branch of the, uh, uh, the World Bank uh, based in Addis Ababa. It's, it's because I, I think the, the, the point is, even now, the, the language of structural transformation, etc., which uh, Carlos Lopez, you know, is trying to sort of reverse that language, mm. I am very doubtful how much you can go with it. Mm. Because when it comes to budget allocation to ECA, they're just watching. Nobody's jumping in mm. to finance Africa's structural transformation. So we got a kind of, you know, second Adedeji deja vu moment may come, I don't know when. So it's interesting the resistance to alternative ideas. Mm, absolutely. And how, how this seems to be, after all, it's the UN agency, but I think there are some limits. Shall we have a closing statement? <laughs> I'm just going to say, <laughs> one, um, thanks to everybody who's here and the people who are here and have left and people who didn't come for, for bringing the, the papers together. Uh, when I saw Stephen Chen running out this morning, he stopped and, and said, you know, I really think this is an important contribution. I really think the Third World Quarterly is a place that this conversation ought to begin because obviously it's not going to be over with our contributions. And the purpose of this meeting is really to make the papers much better, and I'm sure we've done that. Um, Pallavi and I will write a, a kind of uh, some marching orders, uh, which relate to some deadlines that are determined by uh, Shahid and company. Uh, we really do need your final version back by early, not later than 8 January, but early January. Um, and um, I will send along uh, some instructions about the style guide, which, which I think only Amatov is the person who actually followed the style guide closer than anybody else. Um, but this will eliminate, you know, if we eliminate errors early rather than later, and will stop a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth by the two of us and uh, and, a, and a copy editor later. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening.